Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special live edition of Sorry Not Sorry. Uh, Before we get started, if you are listening to this after the fact and we sound a little different, it's because we are recording over Zoom and using that audio. Okay, so last week, Vladimir Putin ordered an illegal and immoral invasion of Ukraine to the horror and outrage of nearly the entire world. While resistance has been stiffer than Putin anticipated, today attacks escalated against the civilian infrastructure of Europe's second largest country. To discuss the unfolding crisis, I've invited my friend Andrea Chalupa And Andrea is uh, the co-host of Gaslit Nation podcast. Uh, She wrote the screenplay of the movie Mr. Jones, and she's the author of the book Orwell and the Refugees. Uh, Later on the show, we will have an audience Q&A. So to ask a question, you can look at uh, the bottom of the screen, press the Q&A button, and we will get to as many as we possibly can Obviously, please stick on to the topic. Um, So, Andrea, welcome. I I feel like every time you and I get to have a chat, it's always when something really serious happens in the world. (laughs) But thank you so much for being here. And I would just love for you to just start by telling our audience about your personal connection with Ukraine. Well, thank you so much, Alyssa, and also to Ben for organizing this. And I just want to point out that a friend of mine who's a Russian analyst who's taken a lot of risk being Russian and speaking out about human rights for Russia and Ukraine, he made the point that it's so important for we in the West to call on our celebrities to raise awareness of this issue. So thank you for doing this. And I feel like this is so important for us to have this conversation. And so thank you both to uh, your producer, Ben, as well. Um, So my background is my, it's very, it's very difficult to talk about because what we're seeing carrying out right now in Ukraine is a genocide. And uh, both sides of my family, my mother and father, they're, they're both Ukrainian. I'm a hundred percent Ukrainian. And my family escaped the Soviet Union. My mother's side suffered through Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine, which in 1933 deliberately starved to death, some conservative estimates, 5 million people 
um, sorry, like, uh, yeah, 5 million people and the vast majority were in Ukraine. And so it's hard for me to talk about my family history because it's repeating now. The trauma we thought was history is back in an even greater existential threat way. Um, I remember as a little girl being on vacation in Lake Tahoe and my dad made us gather around the television to watch Ukrainians filling Maidan Square in Kiev and singing the Ukrainian national anthem because they brought down the Soviet Union by voting for their independence overwhelmingly in a referendum. And that was the first time, and I am pretty sure the only time I've ever seen my father cry. And so to have my parents have to go through this again, to watch this happen, it's, it's, a, it's re-traumatizing for all of us who thought the worst, who thought Stalin was behind us. You mentioned a little bit, but I want to go, I want to take a deeper dive because Russia and Putin have a long history of trying to meddle with and and control Ukraine's government. And many people believe he was behind the poisoning of former president um, Yushchenko in an attempt to destabilize the country. So, I mean, what the fuck? Why is Putin so focused on Ukraine? Well, so it's important to know that... Uh, Putin's terrorism, Putin's terrorism, he's a KGB guy. Um, the KGB, the, the security agency for the Kremlin, is a sadistic cult. It's always been driven by sadists. It's, it's always, uh, they've always had a sadistic policy of coming in and causing as, as much brutality as possible. Uh, one example of that, under Stalin, they set up something called the Russian Orthodox Church. It's, it's known as the KGB Church, where they had priests that were spying for the state at home and abroad. Imagine that you turn to a church for, for comfort and it's KGB agents who are spying on you. So that level of sadism where you're not allowed to have your own personal life and be your own person and the torture that people endured and the repression, this went on for the entire history of the Soviet Union. Putin is a KGB guy. So when he came to power, um, he came to power through what was uh, believed to be a false flag event um, and covered by a great investigative journalist by the name of David Sa- or, or written about by a great investigative journalist by the name of David Satter, where uh, there are these mysterious bombs in the heart of Mos- in Moscow, these apartment buildings. And that gave Putin cover to then go in and launch a war with Chechnya, which was brutal brutal. He went in a second time in Chechnya because he wasn't successful the first time and he just leveled it, leveled it. And his terror against the and the Russian people just escalated from there. Um that was in like the late 90s, like early yeah. And then he um and then with Ukraine so what so his terror first my point is that his terror first began with the Russian people. There were he sh- shut down opposition networks like any there's a popular snl version of russia that used to make fun of him and that was really popular he shut that down uh there were journalists and 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 activists that were forced to move abroad He, he was shutting down newspapers he killed a prominent journalist that was covering the war in chechnya and she was murdered on his birthday and that's another key sickness he has he loves there's a weird symbolism with key dates for putin um and then that leads us to Ukraine. So while Putin was terrorizing Russians and turning Russia into a dictatorship, Ukraine was struggling to move out of Russia's orbit and become more like a Western democracy. And in 2004, there was this handsome, young, energetic, democratic 
pro-Western candidate running for president. And so, of course, he had to die. And so in the middle of his election, there was a poisoning, like a radioactive dioxin, like some horrible poison that you just don't touch. And it it permanently disfigured his face, nearly killed him. And he came out of that miraculously and continued to fight for the election and become president. Uh, Putin's proxies stole that election. And what the Ukrainians did was they went out to Kiev Square and they camped out in the bitter cold, demanding that election, that corrupt election be redone. And it was. And with the fair and free election, with all these election observers from abroad, the young Democratic candidate won, the pro-Western candidate won, even though he'd like, he, he wasn't the same person anymore because of how disfigured and, and internally damaged he was from an extremely serious, sadistic uh, uh, assassination attempt meant to send a really chilling message. Again, KGB sadism. And so what happened after that was, um, as we're experiencing in the U.S., there's a lot of infighting between the opposition party that was in charge at the time. Um, unity broke down. They could, and, and eventually that allowed uh, room for a pro-Putin proxy, the same guy who stole the election in 2004, to come back bigger and better than before with the help of Paul Manafort, Donald Trump's longtime friend and neighbor. Paul Manafort taught this Putin puppet how to present himself, how to use rhetoric, how to clean up his act, how to um, how to appeal to the most people, how to sell a nice package. And so he ended up winning. But when he when he got into power, his true colors came out and he started enriching himself and his family and and his inner circle was known as the family. And uh, when when the Ukrainian people you know, who, who wanted, who had aspirations to join the West, uh, were putting pressure on him to sign this uh, largely symbolic European Association Agreement, which would bring Ukraine closer um, with Europe, it, certainly in terms of like helping Ukraine adjust more to European standards. Um, in the final hour, Putin's puppet uh, rejected this deal and instead took a massive, massive a bribe essentially like something like 15 billion dollars from putin to turn his back on the eu and ukrainians were not having it there was a facebook post launched by an, an independent investigative journalist saying guys i'll see you in the square let's go and all these college students all these young kids came out demanding to join the eu and right away the police were fired were like were you know went violent on them and that violence uh, would escalate over time where Kiev became a fiery battle zone. And what we're seeing now played out then. There were all these viral images and videos of Ukrainians being beaten, of, of government snipers firing on protesters, of an all-out war. And the more violent the images of what was being done to protesters went out there, uh, the more Ukrainians rushed towards danger, rushed towards the the square to help out. And we're seeing that now play out with this whole civil defense. Um, and so what ultimately happened was um, EU and US officials came in um, to broker a peace deal between Putin's puppet and the protesters. And the deal was that he could stay in power in exchange for early elections. And when this deal was being announced um, to a sea of protesters, a young kid gets up on stage, you know, in his 20s, he gets up on stage, 
grabs the microphone and says, I watched my best friend die here on the square. The president has until tomorrow to leave or we're going to make him leave. And so Yanukovych, Putin's puppet, flees to Russia where he's been ever since. And a few, you know, then Ukraine um, has a, a fair and free election and, and votes overwhelmingly for a pro-Western democratic government. And it's been getting better and better and growing more and more Western and democratic. And during that time, Putin, you know, he, as soon as the revolution was successful, as soon as the uprising was successful, Putin went in right immediately and seized Crimea and then started invading in the East. And that's been a massive drain on Ukraine, obviously. It's been very traumatic for the country, but it's also been economic warfare, making Ukraine look like a dangerous place. So for eight years, he's been in Crimea. He's been in the east, eastern, eastern Ukraine, um, carrying out all sorts of atrocities there. These are Mad Max Orwellian hell zones, the, especially in the eastern part. Like you, like They rank on the level of North Korea in terms of how dark they are, how sadistic these these little areas are now. Thank you for that incredible explanation, because um, you're so impassioned when you speak about it, but it also becomes it becomes personal listen, listening to you speak about it, because you're not talking about the politics of it. Um, but I just want to back up for a second and unpack that in 2014, Putin invaded and annexed Crimea, a region of the country that has some historical ties to Russia. Right. So so why is the world's response so different this time? Well, I think it's that's a very good question. I think it's a number of factors. So Crimea is Ukraine. That's important to understand. And there's no Russian ownership over it. There's the indigenous group, the Crimean Tatars, who also lay claim to it, who face their own genocide under Stalin. Um, and one thing people have to understand about Crimea, it was such a shock. You know, people had the people and, and there's been reporting that has come out that he had his eyes on Crimea for a while and that there was a battle plan, a strategy plan for to seize Crimea for a while. So I think it's important that we, we all understand that what's playing out today with Putin's massive war on Ukraine is very much consistent in his thinking since the beginning in terms of having his eye on empire in terms of, of uh, trying to undo the result of the Cold War, to undo the dismantling of the Soviet Union, which he called the greatest uh, catastrophe of the 20th century, um, to humiliate and shame the West, like he felt shamed with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he's been playing this long game for a very for since he's come to power. Like you've seen signs of it just escalating. And I think what's really important to understand is that Crimea was able to be annexed because at the time it was a shock. People, the U.S. was shocked and um, I, they just wanted to buy time. They wanted to keep things cool, hope that cooler heads would prevail. And I think 
Obama's foreign policy at the time was stretched really thin with fighting ISIS. And then, of course, would he go on to do the Iran nuclear deal and then open up relations with Cuba. So I don't think he wanted to deal with this. He was trying to, and then Syria, of course, the atrocities in Syria by the dictator Assad. And so, and he, so, he, so Obama's foreign policy team wanted to actually try to work with Putin to try to establish some peace and protect civilians in Syria to try to get Iran on board with the nuclear deal. So Obama's foreign policy team had its hands tied with a, with a spread thin foreign policy. And on top of that, we had a European Union that was deeply entrenched with Russian business interests. So everything Obama did to hold Putin accountable for Ukraine was hamstrung by Merkel and the rest of the EU wanting to try to cool things down and act like everything was fine and normal and not rock the boat. It was just really, so it was, the EU was, was sort of at fault there and Obama maybe being spreading himself too thin. Maybe there are things he could have saved for the next, another democratic administration if he just sort of gave himself more time for Putin. I think we saw with the 2016 election, with the a deeply documented Russian attack on our election in 2016 that how caught off guard the Obama administration was by that. So I think we got to this point in large part because the West just didn't want to deal with the reality of who Putin is. They didn't, they couldn't think like him. They couldn't put their, they kept thinking he was a rational actor that would have the Russian people in mind. That if you just put these sanctions on him, it would force him to recalculate that he would want the he would want what was best for his economy and the Russian people and to grow Russia into a great country. No, Putin is a KGB guy. The way they think is sadism. It's 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 a whole system of sadism that lasted for the entirety of the Soviet Union. And it's very difficult to comprehend unless you've studied Soviet history. And I want to give an example of my film, Mr. Jones, about Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. I made a movie that was meant to uh, reach as many people as possible. I didn't show, I, I, I used an Alfred Hitchcock approach where I would show the knife, but not the knife entering the body. Like I was very careful to how much horror I would show. If I showed you the full horror of Stalin's deliberate genocide famine in Ukraine, it would be like a saw horror film. It would be just like you you would have to turn it off if you saw what he did. And so that that's just one genocide out of several committed under Stalin. And so people it's so what I'm saying is it's very hard for people to wrap their minds around evil. It's very hard. And it's very and, and so a lot of the, a lot of this was for years the West trying to act in good faith with a bad faith actor. And also too many in the West, including our European allies, being bought off by Putin or Russian, big, big Russian business interests, you know, like gas and oil. And here's the price for it now. And so a lot of experts that years ago were saying he's Hitler, or we promise you he's Hitler. He just keeps escalating. If you don't stop him now, he's just going to keep going. They were right. I also think between 2014 and 2016, we had election meddling in our own elections. We had, you know, the the other Putin puppet who who was our president for four years. We also had misinformation campaign that happened. So I do think that maybe, you know, between uh, EU and the U.S., 
perhaps everybody understands the extent of the evil now. Um, the other thing that is playing out that I think is really important to just touch on is um, Ukraine's military resistance has been more successful than, than many, you know, especially Putin seemed to anticipate, right? So, so what is that about? Why do you think that is? Is the, is the Russian military just shit? I think it's a combination of factors. I think it, it's number one, Ukrainians understand the KGB mindset because they suffered under it. So they understand the enemy. Ukrainians understand the enemy. Again, Putin got this far because too many leaders in the West did not understand the enemy. Ukrainians do. That's why they're able to outsmart him. And they also don't respect him. Ukrainians don't respect Putin. They absolutely don't. They see him as a weak person. They see him as a scared little person where too many in the West see him as this mysterious chess master who is going to assassinate people, almost like he's a Bond villain. They give him the mystique of a Bond villain. He's a joke to Ukrainians. So that's really important to understand is that Putin is what we would say, call in America a little bitch to Ukrainians. And they treat him that way, where we in the West revere him because he's so exotic and different and Bond villainish. And we all love, we all love a villain, right? Right. There's, yeah, there's a mystique to him that we fall for in the West, which, and, and Ukrainians don't, don't see him that way. They really see him as like what I just said. It's like, you know, really this guy. And um, so that's one. Number two is they're fighting for survival. Putin uses a lot of genocidal language in talking about Ukrainians, that Ukraine is not a country, does not exist. Ukrainians are subhuman. Um, they should be eradicated. And all of his pop propaganda machine, all of his networks, all of his outlets repeat this genocidal language to justify what was playing out now, which is a genocide. So Putin, and, so, and then the third option is, um, the third reason is that um, his military shit. Um, I was talking to a Syrian expert, somebody who's been on the front lines and trying to help civilians in Syria for a very long time now. And he was like, no, the Russian military is shit. It's shit. And you've seen a track record of that. Like Chechnya, for instance, is like the size of Jamaica. It's a republic inside Russia. It was it, what, what Putin did to Chechnya was horrible, but it was easy for him because it was inside of Russia and it's around the size of Jamaica. Um, then he goes on to seize a, a, a region of Georgia, which already had a lot of sympathy to him. Crimea was pretty low-hanging fruit. The far eastern edge of Ukraine was we could say low-hanging fruit. It doesn't justify the actions of invading another country. And then in Syria, he was just carrying out mass slaughter, mass bombing of civilians to prop up his buddy Assad. So he's never done anything on this scale before. So, we, so he's currently over his skis right now. He's not prepared for this at all. And the Russian military, as massive as it is, it's like the second biggest military in the world after the U.S. and China competes for that number two spot. But um, as massive as, as Russia's military is, it is a victim of Putin's corruption. You have these kids that are getting conscripted without it training, just pulled into this war. And they're not, they're not, they're not being fed. They're begging Ukrainians for food. When you see some of these prisoner of war videos, you see these Russian soldiers like shoving their faces with food 
you know, thankful to these Ukrainians that captured them. These guys are starving. The morale is low. They're abandoning their equipment, really expensive equipment, and they're running out into the woods or they're surrendering. And that's all because of how horribly they've been treated by the czar in the Kremlin, who's worth like maybe like $600 billion plus. And so they know, they're like, why are we out here fighting for these oligarchs? So corruption is a problem. Corruption plagues the entire military. Propaganda plagues the military. Putin is so in his bubble and has been for such a long time that he believes his own propaganda. He thought this would be a 15-day war. He thought he would, he would conquer these major cities of millions of people within a day or two. They came in not just with soldiers, but their front line were basically riot police that are used to, to, to stop protests. So he was treating Ukraine, and to some extent, like he might treat protesters inside Russia, right? And then there's this, there's this insane story of the Russian paratroopers who are these glorified riot police across Russia. Like they're, they're treated like kings. Like they're treated like the elite force of Russia. And they're given this free reign to, to act all tough and, and to, to, to you know, show their muscles around. And they're the pride of Russia. He sent in these paratroopers into Ukraine and they just got slaughtered. They got slaughtered. And so, um, so, and so, and so the, par- the paratroopers are mostly used as psyops. Like we're so tough, we're so tough to intimidate the Russian population, to impress the Russian population with Russian might, Russian chauvinism. And then they go into Ukraine thinking these Ukrainians are a bunch of bumpkins, a bunch of Nazis that, are, that deserve to be killed, and they get slaughtered by them. And they're just and so there's a massive shock going on right now for the Russian system. And um, so, and it's all of Putin's making. And so currently, by the, the current estimates, around 90% of the military forces that he had lined up around the country are currently inside Ukraine. He's used up 90% of his forces, right? He was supposed to take Kiev in a day or two. And 90% of his forces are already in there. And, and these guys are getting... And, and so now what he's doing is he's pulling in forces from other corners of the country, spreading his military thin. I want to point out again, he's never done, Russia under Putin has never done anything on this scale. He's never done anything on this scale. And there's, there's no president for this under him. And, and so what happens next? Can he occupy Ukraine, a country with an extremely long and proud history? of resistance, including guerrilla warfare, including partisan fighting, right? Can he, can he occupy a country like that? With, no, he simply can't. He cannot occupy Ukraine. And so what happens next? This is the big fear of what happens next. What happens next is that if he cannot occupy Ukraine, which is going to dawn on him, obviously, he's going to destroy as many Ukrainians as he can with all this shelling. He's even going to go to Western Ukraine, right on the border of Poland. He's, he's carrying out a genocide. People have to understand that Putin has been obsessed with Ukraine for a very long time now. Why has he been obsessed with Ukraine? Because he wants the Russian empire back. He wants to leave behind a legacy of being a great czar. He's, again, he sees the, fail, the collapse of the Soviet Union as a great tragedy that he, that he feels spiritually that he must correct. And this is what that is all about. And Ukraine holds the key to that. Why does Ukraine hold the key to that? Because Ukraine is a cultural jewel inside the, the Slavic world. 
Kiev is known as the Jerusalem of the Slavs. Ancient churches that are UNESCO heritage sites are there that are several centuries old. Um, Kiev gave birth to not only Ukraine, but Russia and Belarus are descended from Kiev. Um, It is the holy land of the Slavs. And plus, it's resource rich. And Russia doesn't make anything. They extract resources from the earth, namely oil and gas. Ukraine's resource rich. So this would this would extend the wealth and prestige of the empire. So he wants this jewel back. In foreign policy, there's a saying that Russia with Ukraine is the United States. Russia without Ukraine is Canada. Right. So this is so, so Putin's getting up in years. He's going to die soon. You know, he, he's he's he wants to leave behind this legacy. And for him, it's to correct the, the tragedy of the collapse of the Soviet Union, which, by the way, Ukraine brought about by voting, being the first to vote for its independence. Right. Ukraine started that whole mess in Putin. It, it, that's a fact that like Ukraine brought it all down with the independence referendum. And, and I think that's part of Putin's resentment towards Ukraine. For sure. I want to get to some, um, uh, we have a lot of audience questions, which is great. People seem really engaged. Um, I do want to say that today that there are reports of nearly a thousand civilian deaths in Ukraine and Putin seems to be uh, attacking civilian infrastructure, which is exactly what you said with reports of schools, heating pipelines and residential areas being targeted. Um, Alvin wants to know, uh if any federal aid from the Biden administration will make a difference for for ordinary Ukrainians? Oh, without question. Ukraine needs all the help it can get right now. Um, if anything Biden can do, I do want to say what's been a really amazing to see is the revolution that Putin has created across Europe. Earlier, I mentioned that Europe was a weaker ally. It, with the, you know, the U.S. had to pull Europe along and standing up to Putin. Now it's reversed. Europe has never been stronger and united. It's been a massive sea change. I can't even tell you. So, in fact, we're at the point now where Europe's sanctions, the EU sanctions, are actually stronger than the U.S. And so, so, the, so the big call to action is to ask the U.S., ask your members of Congress to, for more severe sanctions, uh, total removal of Russia from SWIFT. Right now, it's just selective, just um, total total uh, sanctions of all Russian banks, of um, the tech industry, oil and gas, embargo on Russian oil and gas. I know the whole talking point that, oh, Americans don't get that much Russian Russian oil, but all, all of that, all Russian oil, wherever it's sold in the world, is paying right now for Putin's war. So basically, the money tap has to be completely turned off so Putin runs out of money to pay for his war. Why is this so important? Because if you look at Putin's overall track record, he's famously stubborn and he pushes things way too far. Imagine the worst thing a sadist can do. He will do it. There was a strategy that Putin employed in Syria where he tested out a lot of his weapons, where 
Russian planes would bomb civilians. The aid workers in Syria would rush to save civilians. And then the Russian plane would come back around and bomb the aid workers. And anytime there were negotiations for a safe passage corridor for civilians, what do you think Russia did? It broke those deals and would bomb civilians, would bomb UN aid aid caravans and other things in Syria. It's pure sadism. And I keep pointing that out because pure sadism is the history of the Soviet Union. It's that KGB mentality. Ukrainians, which arguably suffered the worst during Soviet repression, understand that very well. And that is what you're seeing right now play out in that fierce fighting, that fierce resistance we're seeing. They know. Cheryl, we're talking about this and and Cheryl wants to know, she has a great, a great question. She, she asks, is there an off-ramp for Putin at this point? Oh, hell no. Death. There's, there's death. Cheryl, there's death. That's the only off-ramp because he has made up his mind. He does not think this is a mistake. He is frustrated. He's reportedly yelling at people more at the office. Um, but he is determined to go all the way. If he cannot have Ukraine, he will destroy it. He will kill as many Ukrainians as possible. And that's extremely important for people to understand because that is what happened with Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. Um, so let me, just, let me just stop for a second and say, Ukraine is this, right? Half the country is Russian speaking, half the country is Ukrainian speaking. Where did that partition come about? Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. Um, this part of Ukraine that was, is, so this, this part of Ukraine was under Soviet rule. This part of Ukraine was not. It was it was aligned with Poland or whatever at the time. Um, and I'm covering so many broad topics, so I'm not, I'm not being as precise as I'd like to be because I want to cover a lot tonight. Um, so the part of Ukraine that was trapped under the Soviet Empire was liquidated, essentially, uh, by the Soviet during Stalin's genocide famine. It was an all-out attack on Ukrainian national identity. Ukrainian leading thinkers were purged. Ukrainian cultural institutions of all kinds were shut down. Um, People had their food taken away. Anything they could use to feed themselves were destroyed. Um, Even stories of pets being killed. I interviewed one survivor of the famine who describes how she and her brothers were boiling a pot of twigs and leaves to create a soup to feed themselves. And a a Soviet soldier came, took it out, and, and dumped it destroyed it. So they, they, they didn't have nuclear weapons at the time. So how do you kill millions of people? You starve them to death and you, by taking away their food. And so what happened over time, that region of Ukraine gradually became replaced with Russians under Soviet rule. And it became increasingly Russian speaking. So that is why the country is partitioned with this Russian half and this Ukrainian half. But they're united. They're all, they see them in, the, in modern, they, they see themselves as one Ukraine and they've never been more united. And in fact, in this whole push against United War against Putin, the Eastern half, there's like all these stories of, the, of Eastern, Ukrainians learn, Eastern Ukrainians learning the Ukrainian language and speaking the Ukrainian language and out of you know, the resistance spirit to Putin now. Um, so my point is this. Putin will level Ukraine. He will bomb the churches. He's already bombing. Uh, he bombed a museum. He will destroy the whole idea of Ukraine, wipe it off the face of the map. This is genocide that's playing out before our eyes. He cannot occupy it. So the best, in his mind, he will still win by destroying Ukraine. And what he, what he would imagine happening over time, as the West gets weary of the war, as the West moves on, 
to other things is that he'll eventually, the, the country will just be decimated, that he'll bring in Russians. And that's how he'll do it. That's how he'll conquer Ukraine. And Putin, and I just want to say one thing, Putin plays the long game. I can't emphasize that enough. If you look at all the, the wonderful documentation on Trump and the Russians and how they were developing Trump for many, many years, you know, Russians buying into Trump real estate, Putin plays the long game. So he has time. He can just continue slaughtering civilians and, and, and he'll just count on us finally getting bored and turning away. Well, we're hearing from activists on the ground in Ukraine that they want all of Russia's banks cut out of SWIFT, like you mentioned before, which is a financial network which facilitates international transactions um, instead of just the few largest banks. But they also want more action from corporations like Visa, MasterCard and other financial institutions. Um, So I think that that is the next step. But uh, Sandy Phillips and others want to know what military options should be on the table, especially from the EU and NATO. So people have to understand that Ukrainians right now who are, who are losing children, who are losing husbands, the war, families are separated, all the horror watching play out in the news. They're going through this hell while the most powerful military in the world, NATO, is sitting on the sidelines. That's their perspective. They're like, you're leaving us out here to die. Somebody, like, help us. And Russia is apparently using weapons against civilians, which are banned by international law. Exactly right. And so what pe- So the, the big thing is, the big thing is, is that Russia's military is shit, you guys. It's a really bad military. It's destroyed by corruption. It's destroyed by arrogance. And it's poor strategic planning and logistics. It's a shit military. NATO would NATO could come in. I mean, the NATO is is not that. NATO is the elite force of of military. And so Ukraine, from the Ukrainian perspective, they're like, we have the most powerful military in the world right there, right next door, just sitting watching all this. Where while we're being slaughtered, while there's a genocide being carried out, where are you? And so the big request from the big plead from ukrainians is please 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 send us anti-aircraft missiles so we could protect ourselves and shoot down the planes and please send planes so we can shoot down all of their caravans carrying soldiers and supplies so ukrainians need and a no-fly zone is essential or a safe zone whatever you want to call it and, and I talked to two Syrian friends about, like, what, how did a no-fly zone work in Syria? How could it work in Ukraine? And one was giving me excellent advice about how um, a no-fly zone would make a tremendous difference, but it has to be enforced. Now, the elite force of NATO can figure out some workaround for that. Maybe NATO officially doesn't want to do the no-fly zone. But what's stopping them from, you know, maybe Turkey? Turkey could do a no-fly zone. Turkey has been very, very aggressive and helpful in supplying Ukraine with these drones that are making a massive difference in protecting the country right now. So according to a Syrian friend, like Turkey could independently of NATO say enough is enough. Turkey's going to supply a no-fly zone, meaning we're going to protect the skies. 
We're going to supply jets to Ukrainians and we're going to make sure that civilian areas, that they're, they're safe civilian corridors. So Turkey could break from NATO and potentially do this. It would take some sort of will of courage to do this. And I know people are thinking, oh, no, but that's World War Three. And I want to tell everybody World War Three started a long time ago. I have this tweet that I wrote back in Kiev when I was in Kiev in 2014, where I wrote that a security expert in Kiev who had just escaped ISIS in Iraq was now in Ukraine to help the Ukrainians told me that World War Three already started and the West just doesn't know it yet. And then we see Russia hijack our election and install a Russian asset as president who wreaks havoc on America and the uh, democratic alliance in the world. And we saw that was a Russian op against democracy, what Donald Trump. And so we, we see Russians buying off British establishments so they can dodge accountability. That's been that still continues to play out. The UK talks tough. But hasn't been ba- hasn't been backing that up with tough enough sanctions. There's too too much accommodation for their Russian oligarch corruption. That's World War Three. It's disinformation. It's um, it's it's corruption. It's golden handcuffs. It's blood money. It, it's everything we're seeing with our institutions essentially being captured by Russian oligarch money and interests. And so I think people need to just catch up to the fact that we're already in a 21st century version of World War Three. Putin only understands strength. The Russian military is a joke of a military, which is why Ukraine is still standing. And NATO doing anything at all that might show strength and solidarity is going to, is going to force the Russians to not kill as many civilians as they might like to. So I think it's really important that Ukraine in some way, shape or form, the brain trust of NATO can figure it out, provide a safe zone, a no-fly zone, provide javelins so they can knock down planes, provide fighter fighter jets so they can own the skies. If Russia gets domination of the sky over Ukraine, it, it's game over. It's going to be just full genocide time. Right now, Ukraine is holding on, but President Zelensky keeps saying, no fly zone, give us a no fly zone, please, and give us fighter jets. You have them. Why are you, why are you holding on to them? Give them to us. We need them and give us more javelins. Um, And so with all of this, Ukraine can survive. Ukraine as a nation can survive. The genocide can be avoided. Putin only understands strength. And remember, he got to this point because the West was acting in good faith with a bad actor. Mindy wants to know if anti-Semitism is playing a role in Putin's actions. A trillion percent. That's a very good question. The historian Tim Snyder who wrote On Tyranny and Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, who, and who was also an advisor on my film, Mr. Jones. Uh, he just, just did this great interview saying that by framing Ukraine with, with a vibrant Jewish community, Ukraine with a major city that's a Mecca for Jews around the, you know, around the world, Ukraine, which had a, has a Jewish president, right? That's the, outside of Israel. There's only one, and, it's a, and he's in Ukraine. And you see Holocaust survivors and driven into into these uh, bunkers. So yeah, so so Tim Snyder, the historian, made the point that by Putin framing Ukraine as Nazis, it, what it does is it, it frames Jew, Jewish people like Zelensky as deserving to be killed, as 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 being to blame. Right. So it is it is this perverse anti-Semitism, absolutely. 
John wants to know if Putin will invade other former Soviet states. Yes. Yes. Um, So he will go to Moldova. He will go to Georgia. He wants the Soviet Union back. So he's he's almost 70. He's he's got some years ahead of him and he just wants to do this. He just wants to leave behind this legacy in his mind. That's been the driving force for years. So, yes, he will keep going and he will create more refugees to flood across Europe. Uh, Matthew wants to know what part of this war are we not paying attention to that we should be? That is an excellent question. That is an excellent question. I think the war is here at home in the U.S. because Obama dragged Merkel and the EU along in sanctioning Russia. Putin hates Obama. Putin hates Hillary Clinton. And they and so Putin being the gambler that he is, attacked our election in 2016 with, with these bought-off assets, right? Um, there was this report, there's this piece in the Dallas Morning News of how Russian oligarch money was circulating in the GOP in 2016 and so forth. So we have a lot of stories like that. And we have a, too many members of Congress that sound like Kremlin propaganda. Obviously, the, you know, we all know like uh, Senator Johnson from Wisconsin and um, Senator, who's it, Rand Paul in Tennessee or whatever, where Kentucky. Sorry, I've been so Ukraine focused. But um, so so we have too many um, propaganda mouthpieces in Congress. So I think we have to watch out for classic Russian asymmetrical warfare, where they buy off politicians, where they hack our election systems, where they spread disinformation, where they hack people's minds. And they use all that to try to steal another election in 2022 and 2024. I would be very, very, very cautious about the home front and how they try to retaliate against us for holding them accountable finally. But do not be intimidated by holding them accountable. And in fact, part of the part of the sanctions on Russia, part of Let me put it this way. He's at war with us. We don't want to be at war with him. We all want to just live our lives, binge watch Netflix, and not even have to think about this. No one wants this war, but he's at war with us. So when someone's at war with you, you've no choice but to be on a war footing. And so we have to sanction him. We have to do even more severe sanctions to turn off the money tap so we can no longer pay for this war. We have to keep going. We have no choice or else he'll keep, keep, he'll, he'll be a genocide. So while doing that, we have to secure the home front. We have to pass uh, whatever executive orders needed to secure our elections, um, for cybersecurity for our elections, cybersecurity for our, our major corporations, especially all the especially critical infrastructure. Um, we need to um, beef up anti um, uh, misinformation and, and disinformation uh, campaigns out there. Like really clean up the, the space. Big tech has to get on board in a very big way in protecting the American public. Facebook can no longer be a slush fu- a slush fund of, of authoritarian disinformation. There has to be a massive effort on the home front to secure our elections and to secure uh, and to protect facts and truth and and to stop the the, the pollution that's been dividing us. Um, I think that's that's so critical. Andrea, I close every episode by asking this question, and I want to ask. It of you as well. What gives you hope? 
Ukrainians, Ukrainians have always given me hope. I've, I've studied this country for since 2004 and I'm, I love the history of the place I, in during the, the 2014 uh, Euromaidan revolution of dignity, where all the Ukrainians are running towards danger to overthrow Putin's puppet. They, these kids, they, they're people from all ages. They're people from all ages, uh, Mothers making Molotov cocktails, grad students making Molotov cocktails, business owners making Molotov cocktails, and everybody pitched in across society to do what they could where they were. And out there on the square, they had concerts, they had a library, they had um, they had big murals to the Walt Whitmans of Ukraine, like Taras Shevchenko and Lesya Ukrainka, the 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 spiritual poets that kept the uh, idea of Ukraine's national identity alive during so many years of Kremlin uh, repression. And so this is Ukraine itself is a miracle. The fact that they've resisted and stood strong against genocides and wars, Ukraine, along with Belarus, lost some of the most people during World War II. And this country is, is still standing. There were Ukrainians that survived Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine and went on to survive the Holocaust, right? These, these are, this is what these people are made out of. And if you have spent so many years traveling to Ukraine and meeting Ukrainians and how nice they are, the entire time I lived in Kiev in 2005, I never had to buy a map because I'd ask someone on the street for directions and they would walk me there. And sometimes I'd become friends with them and hang out with them. And, it, and in one case, I, I introduced complete strangers together and they started a rock band in Ukraine that got national press. Like that's Ukraine. It's just this vibrant, gorgeous community. And Kiev itself is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Charles, Charles de Gaulle, I, I believe called it like the greenest city in all of Europe because of all the rolling hills and the trees. And it's just an enchanting place. It's really, it's a place that once you discover it, you fall in love and you feel like you, you've, you just feel nurtured. So when you see all these POW videos of Russians being captured and being fed and these women saying, here, call your mom, that's that nurturing spirit that gave me my life back when I went to Ukraine, when I was so distraught because George W. Bush won another election in the U.S. and I thought my life was over. And I went to Ukraine and I found I found my voice. I found my confidence. I began writing my script, Mr. Jones. My whole life and my sense of self came together in Ukraine. I am who I am because of Ukraine. And so I'm not going to abandon it because they are, and they don't, they would not abandon us if we needed them. You know, they're, they're that kind of people as we're seeing. So if you care about democracy, if you care about the global struggle for democracy and human rights and standing up to a tyrant who's making all of our lives miserable, then please, the number one thing to do is refuse to abandon Ukraine, refuse to abandon Zelensky. If you're on social media, if you're on Twitter, Retweet Zelensky, whatever Zelensky asks for, whatever calls for help he's making, retweet him. You know, we can't just sit back and share memes of Zelensky as a superhero. That's like objectifying him. I mean, those memes are awesome. Don't get me wrong, but share them and also share his calls for help. So please amplify Zelensky in whatever he needs. He refuses to abandon his people. So we have to refuse to abandon him. Well, Andrea Chalupa, you give me so much hope. Thank you. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for all that you do and for being a part of the podcast. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Okay, so everyone that's watching and listening, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, Vladimir Putin 
he might be the most dangerous man on the planet right now. He is a sociopath. He is a power-hungry madman who sees it as his divine mission to reunite the Soviet bloc. And he controls one of the largest stockpiles of nuclear arms in the world. He cannot be allowed to remain in power. We cannot. We we must not allow this crisis to end with Putin still in power. The Russian people deserve a humane, compassionate, and forward-thinking leader who will bring Russia into the global fold. The rest of the world needs to keep economic pressure on Putin, preventing him from funding and executing further havoc in the world. We must do more. People of Ukraine are pleading for NATO to enforce a no-fly zone over the country and provide them with missile defense systems. This would cripple Russia's ability to target schools, residences, and government buildings. We might not be able to put troops on the ground, but we can help stop Putin from hitting schools on the ground. Our private financial institutions can sever ties with all Russian commerce. If Putin is not stopped now, where will he be stopped? Do you think his grand plans stop in Kiev? Because I don't. I don't think anyone believes that. For the people of Ukraine, we need to live up to our promise as one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world. We must help them preserve their democracy and rebuild their nation when Putin is forced to withdraw. In the meantime, we must open our doors and shelter the hundreds of thousands of people who have been displaced by this war. We need to be the opposite of Putin. We need to live by our values, and so do our allies. I pray that this senseless war ends quickly and that the people of Ukraine will soon know peace and safety. And I pray for those suffering in the many, many wars around the globe whose victims are not white and which have not received the same level of attention as this one. Pray with me. Pray with me. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. <laughs>